Thanksgiving. I hope you had a good holiday. Anybody have a good Thursday? Some of you did. That's good. Not quite to half, but right over here, gentlemen. There you go. Good. We had a good uh, Thanksgiving in our family. We were uh, gathered at uh, one of my daughter's houses and uh, my son, Chris, who works at a church in Maui, we were texting with him about when he could come online and we could talk with him on the computer after we all kind of gathered there. And, and uh, then he start, you know, he's like, is Marie there yet? No. And we're like, hold on just a little bit. And then he starts texting weird stuff like distance is relative to blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, what does that even mean? And I, I'm literally in the middle of a text that says, too bad you couldn't have caught a flight when I received one from him that says, seriously, it's cold out here, let me in. And so my son came, flew overnight to surprise us on Thanksgiving Day. So it's really fun. It was, uh, it was like being in the middle of a Hallmark uh, you know, holiday movie, which normally I would run from in terror, but it was actually pretty cool. So there's something, but uh, anyway, that was fun, that, that was us, and then 20 hours later, took him back, and he had to work Friday, so uh, anyway, that was fun for us. Someone, something else that happened to us on Thursday, about an hour before we eat, someone, don't even remember who, offered up this little tidbit. Apparently, uh, the average American eats the equivalent of two to three sticks of butter on Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> Which I just wish they had left that out, but, but so I don't know if you're average or above average, but uh, our passage today is really, really rich, but fortunately it's only theologically fattening, so no worries. Uh, we are in a, the study of the book of Luke, and uh, you'll remember that Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus and theo- trying to answer a lot of important questions for him. Now, of course, he's writing after, uh, after Christ's ministry and his death and resurrection. He's writing to Theophilus, and he's going to answer some, some important things, like the fact that it's been a time of what some people call silence. God was silent for 400 years. Not really, but, but there weren't any prophets. There was no new scripture from the time of Malachi. And yet now, in the first century, there, there are talks of Messiah coming. Now, that was a really, really big deal. If you were talking about that in Israel, that was big, big news. And one of the questions that would have been natural, I would think, for Theophilus or, or many, many people after, you know, the mid Uh, first century would be, okay, so Messiah is a big deal, and you say that Jesus was Messiah. How is it that after all that silence, God could do something big and not everyone knows about it? How come come some people embraced him and other people, well, they killed him? (laughs) How, How does that even work? How is that possible? Why do some people see God, and why do some people miss Him? Have you ever felt like God was silent or missing, or you weren't sure you were seeing Him at work in your life? Now, the context of our passage, uh, we have seen over the last few weeks that an angel, Angel Gabriel, came and visited Zechariah and then Mary, and we've heard these stories about two miraculous pregnancies. They're connected to the coming of God's Son, the Messiah. And Mary now, who has been told that she will be uh, the mother, uh, runs off to meet with her relative Elizabeth. And Elizabeth immediately 
confirms for her that this is a safe place. In fact, you and I are going to be able to talk about things. You think about what it was like for a few days for Mary. Like, who can I tell this to? Who would even hear me and believe me? Maybe Elizabeth. And Elizabeth greets her immediately with confirmation that it's going to be okay to talk with her. Elizabeth offers up these words at the end of the passage from last week. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. What great words. Now Mary is in the midst of some pretty challenging circumstances, life circumstances. And she looks at those and she takes what she knows of God and she puts a layer of faith on that. And what comes out of that in response is the most amazing worship. Our passage today is Luke 1, 46 through 56. Let me read it for you. Mary said in response to Elizabeth, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. A couple things about this passage overall. First thing is, it's absolutely packed full with references or allusions to Old Testament stories and songs. You know, think about uh, Mary and her position. Gabriel comes and tells her this, and, and she's, a, she's a very young woman. She's, a, she's an old child, a young woman, and, and uh, she hears this message, and it's amazing on one level, but she's traveling off and, and, and looking for someone to talk to about this. She's headed towards uh, uh, Zechariah's home to talk to Elizabeth. What's she thinking about? It's so obvious. For example, if the angel, not, not the TV, but the angel Gabriel tonight told you that Jesus is coming back this year, right? Not somebody, not somebody online, but, but the angel Gabriel came and said, hey, this is it. Jesus is coming back. What would you be thinking about over the next few days, right? I tell you, you'd be in the book of Revelation, in Matthew, what is it, 24, I think, in, in First and Second Thessalonians, right? You'd be like excited. You'd be very, very focused. Well, here's Mary. Messiah's coming. You're the mom. Who's she thinking about? She's thinking about people like Hannah in the Old Testament, about Leah and Sarah. She's thinking about uh, the, the great promises of God, so about Abraham and David. This, her, her child will be king. She's thinking about the, the ways that God acts through history. And, and she comes up with these phrases about, about raising up, you know, the humble and, and putting down kings. And so she's thinking of Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar, and, and who was greatly humbled, and Haman and Mordecai, perhaps. She's thinking about all the stuff she's learned 
in Bible stories and songs. Now, in your notes, there are some references there if you want to study more about this passage. This is just a small sampling of the connections between Mary's prayer of worship here and the Old Testament. I could give you four times that many, but it's just full of that. The second thing, general kind of observation about our passage today, is it impresses on on me, again, the value of teaching children songs and stories. Last week, Pastor Bob uh, talked about at Gateway, we love babies. Uh, We love them when they're out of diapers, too. You know, we love children and, and students, our youth. We love them all, and we believe in investing in their lives because profound things happen when you do that. Look at Mary's first words. Remember, how, how young she is, and yet she says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Wow. You know, if someone asked you for, like, is there one verse or one sentence that, you know, kind of represents what the Bible is about, many of us would turn to John 3.16. That's a really good one. Some might go to a couple selections in Romans, maybe some other places. But I don't know. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Think about all the stuff that's there. We find in this statement who God is, who we are, how we're to respond to him, and why. It's an amazing statement that comes out of Mary's mouth. Amazing, all within the beginning of her prayer of worship. In fact, it's a great statement of the meaning of life. And here I think about down through the centuries, the philosophers and the scholars and the learned, they write their great works uh, challenging the great questions of, oh, what about the problem of evil and who thought up God in the first place? Did he make us up or did we make him up? And what's the purpose of life and is it all meaningless? And they go on and on and on. And quite frankly, in my mind, a 13, 14, 15-year-old girl puts them all, leaves them all in the dust. (laughs) Now, why is she able to do that? Because she's a Pharisee and has spent her life, you know, memorizing the Old Testament? No, because she's been a child who was taught the Bible stories and the songs. (laughs) That's how she comes up with this. What an amazing, amazing person she is. But she took those stories and those songs, and and again, she treated them with faith and with belief, and what comes out of that recipe is an amazing heart of worship. So today, we're going to think about that, about worship. I think for Theophilus and for us, we kind of get the first hints to some of those answers. Why is it some people see God so clearly and others tend to miss him? One thing we learn is that people who worship like this, they see God really clearly. They really, they tend not to have those days of of challenge of saying, where is God when I need him? They, They know he's present and active. So let's think about worship for a while. It helps us recognize God's presence in our lives. The first aspect is that uh, worship is internal. It's something that is meant to reside first and initiate in, the, in our, the core of our being. Notice how she said that it is her soul that glorifies the Lord and her spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. 
Now sometimes well, a biblical writer will use soul or spirit and kind of they, they can be nuanced a little bit differently. In this case, you know, it's a song, it's kind of like a, a psalm and in that poetry, probably best to think of them as synonyms. She's saying the, the internal part, the, 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 uh, the immaterial part of me, the real me inside, oh man, that's the part that worships God. Uh, and, and then it comes out in words. I'm not just moving my lips here. I'm not just repeating something that someone wrote for me, right? This comes from inside. Now remember, we're reading the New Testament, right? Because this is the book of Luke. But Mary, in her historical context, when she utters these words, she's an Old Testament worshiper, right? Now if I can be so daring or maybe foolish as to just summarize the Old Testament worship in, in like one simple, you know, collection of ideas. Old Testament worship was built around uh, assembling at the temple, right? Either as a nation or a tribe or a family or just going yourself. Assembling at the temple, taking food or animal sacrifices, and observing the Sabbath, right? So there's what an Old Testament worshiper did. And yet, as we look at worship in the Old Testament, we find some really shocking developments. The prophets like uh, Amos had a message from God who, who, through whom God said, I hate, <laughs> I despise your religious feasts, I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Now who was it that that went to extraordinary lengths, who meticulously defined how to bring a grain offering, how to bring a burnt offering, how to assemble the nation or the tribe at the temple and to worship him. It was God. And yet here he is going, ugh, stop it. Stop doing, you know, apparently what I asked for, right? Is that a little confusing? Well, the prophets also help us understand what's going on. The Lord said, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Outwardly, they were doing the right thing, but it wasn't representative of anything internal. And God said, yuck, stop it. He wasn't like ambivalent, like, oh, well, at least you're going through the motions. I sure love that. He's like, just stop that. I don't, you know, this is the big ick for God. <laughs> it's, it's all on the outside. I'm not interested. Worship had become, for people at certain times, all external. It's a little bit like what we should know as parents. Hopefully we know as parents. Birthday parties, vacations. Christmas presents. Those are things that loving parents sometimes give. But those things will not turn you into a loving parent. In the same way, going to the temple with a sacrifice or observing the Sabbath, these were things you did outwardly to express that you, the love and the faith that you had inside, but it could never substitute for the lack of something inside. That was the problem. Jesus would go on and, and continue this theme and talk about the solution, and that is, he said, God is spirit, and so his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. It was actually always true. It's still true. Worship must be internal. Spirit here referring, like Mary said, it's my spirit that glorifies and magnifies the Lord.
See, the form that that takes when it comes out of us, it's not unimportant, but it's always dependent on something being present inside. And so we begin to understand how it is the covenant could change. The covenant was, in modern terms, the relationship agreement, right? <laughs> the, the, the way we're going to relate. Now for Theophilus, we begin to understand why Jesus would go on and begin to challenge, focus on the heart and challenge the outward forms of worship. There was the old covenant thing. Now here we understand what stays the same and what changes. In the old covenant, here was the requirement. A heart of faith and love expressed through going to the temple and bringing sacrifices and observing the Sabbath. Now what stays the same in the new covenant? A heart of faith and love for God. The very exact same thing. Faith. That's, why, that's how you could possibly be related to Abraham, the Bible says. The children of Abraham. Because of faith, it's always been what God has asked for. It's so that doesn't change. The same heart of faith. But not at the temple. Now in the new covenant, see, Jesus establishes that now you will relate to God based on the new covenant. Not at the temple, but within the body of Christ. The body of Christ will be where God resides. Not in a building or a place, but in a people. The heart of faith and love expressed, not at the temple, but within the body of Christ. And not with a sacrifice, not with a, a, a bag of grain or a, you know, your favorite pet or a lamb or something. You know, Pastor Bob probably would bring his cat. But anyway, you know... You know, we don't bring that stuff anymore, right? Why? Because the sacrifice is complete. It was Christ. It was the cross. Everything that, was, that God required existed there. And so that's the sacrifice we celebrate, we commemorate, and we worship God for. And it's a heart of faith and love expressed uh, uh, not on an assigned day, not necessarily on the Sabbath, but through the leading of the Holy Spirit. As Paul would go on to say, one man celebrates on this day, another celebrates on another day. Doesn't matter as long as they're following the Holy Spirit. That is who leads and determines our worship now. So you can see, as Christ shows up, it would be the, those who worship only God externally that would have a hard time with him. In fact, they would really not care for what he said. They would tend to miss or reject outright God's promised Messiah. And internal worshipers, someone with a heart for God, would, would tend to embrace him and his teachings. Worship is a great context. If you have an internal desire to love God, worship is like being home, you know? That feeling that you're in the right place. And I don't mean just a worship service, though that's a good example too. But just worship in general is like being at home when you have an internal desire to love God. But if you feel like you lack that or it's not as much as it should be, worship is a great context because it's a place where we work on that. We try to, to internalize it. And we come and we, and we listen to God's word and we get more of it into our soul and our spirit. So either way, it's a great place to be. Worship is internal. Worship is also intense. It's intense. About a month ago, 
three straight successive nights, I uh, happened to turn on the TV after dinner uh, at about the same time, and it was on a Monday night. I turned the TV on, and there was a concert on. It happened to be a band that my son uh, appreciates for some reason. Anyway, so I watched for a while, and I'll just describe it this way. Uh, the the 10,000 people that were listening to this rock concert, they were apparently having the very best day of their lives. Let me just say it that way. They were excited. The next night, I turned on the TV, and it was an election day, and uh, so, you know, all the news channels are there, and you know what that looks like. There's the, you know, the, the, the suits and the hair and all that sitting behind a desk, and then they go to the ballroom where there's the celebration, the candidate, and I'm just watching, and I'm like stunned watching as some of the people just... They're all googly-eyed about their candidate, and they're kind of drooling over him, and all the words are glowing, and I'm like, whoa, that's amazing. And the next night, I turn on the TV, and there's a sporting event on, and I watch about 30 seconds of that, and you know what that looks like, and I'm like, God, I get it. I really, really get it. Everybody worships. Everyone is passionate about something. It might be a rock star. It might be a politician. I'm sorry, I don't get it. It might be an athlete, a team, you know. It's, but somewhere, everybody is passionate about something. Mary says, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Some of you have a, a translation, the, the glorify there might be, uh, might say exalt or to magnify. Last week, Pastor Bob talked a little bit about magnifying the Lord and, and clarified for us, you know, when we magnify the Lord, we're not making God bigger than he is, right? He is what he is, but we're magnifying our understanding of who he is. We maybe are magnifying his reputation, either in our own understanding or other people's understanding or hopefully both. So this is how I think of it. Now, not that this is totally the right way to think, but if you thought of God as having size, as we often start off like with our, our preschoolers, God is really big, right? God is really big. Well, he doesn't actually have size, but, you know, play along for a while. God is everywhere present, and he's not physical. He's spirit, Jesus said. But anyway, we think of that as a spatial kind of thing. God is big right? And then I'm going along and I'm thinking of God being big, and then I realize because I'm reading the Word or, you know, God impresses something on me through some experience or a teacher or worship, that actually God is a little bigger than I thought He was, right? And so that experience where I magnify him, I have now made him a little closer to what he really is. And so it's important that I magnify him, right? But see, I could keep going with this, but I'd have to rip my arms off because God's always bigger than what I think he is. I'm always a little bit behind. Magnifying God is really helpful for several reasons. First of all, it's what God deserves. He always deserves more credit than I tend to give him. He always deserved more thanks than we can offer up to him. Now, that's not to put us to shame or make us feel bad about what you did on Thanksgiving or anything like that. It's a statement of the reality of how big God is. And he definitely deserves more trust than we tend to give him at any given moment. 
It's what God deserves. Magnifying is also about God. It's not about others. When I say that uh, worship is intense, I'm not uh, saying that you should compare your worship to anyone else. That's not my point. It doesn't lead to, you know, hey, to be a really worshipful church, we've got to be louder or more demonstrative or wilder or, you know, something else than some other church. It's not about comparing churches. It's not about comparing you to someone else. Like sometimes we think, you know, oh, that person was really worshiping because what we saw on the outside. Maybe, maybe not, but that's not the point. It's about comparing yourself to your own passions, your passion for God to your passion for other things. Mary says, I rejoice in God my Savior. Rejoice is expressing an intense joy and gladness. Mary is saying, this is my greatest joy. God, you are my greatest joy. You are my Savior. Above all other things in life. And magnifying God is, is good for me as well. I need it in order to live a little closer to reality to make God in my life, in my mind and thinking, a little closer to what he really is. So there are lots of lessons here that are sort of previewed for Theophilus and for us. In Luke chapter 12, and we'll be there, you know, next Thanksgiving. I just thought it would be kind of ironic if next Thanksgiving weekend I'm standing here and I'm going, so there was a... Anyway, Jesus tells this story about a rich man who, uh, who loved his stuff. He was like, can't get me enough of that good stuff, right? And he built barns. Like, this guy was Black Friday crazy. He, he got all the deals and, you know, and all the 50% off socks, which, sorry if that's, you're into that. I don't get that. Like, I would never get up at 5 a.m. for a pair of socks. But anyway, he loved his stuff and he built, had to build more buildings for it and God's conclusion was, how foolish. You love this stuff, yet tonight you die and you'll have none of it. Right? He loved something more than God. And Jesus would have teachings that will carry on this theme as well. Luke chapter 6, blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. And the, and the parallel beatitude in, in uh, Matthew 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You see, when you hunger for God above all other things in his righteousness, God guarantees you will find satisfaction in your life. That sounds like a good plan to me. It really does. He'll tell a, a story Luke will in chapter 7. You know, get there, it's summertime. It'll be warm. Isn't that an awesome thought? Luke chapter 7. A woman comes to Jesus and with great, the, the great passion of her life, she pours out her repentance at Jesus' feet and she cries over his feet until they're wet and she, she dries his feet with her hair. And, and at this very same setting, there is a Pharisee who is actually the host who has invited Jesus in there, and he is a learned scholar and a man who knows about God more than I do. <laughs> he knows more about God, right? But he has no passion for God. And completely, he has the Son of God at his dinner table and completely misses it. And this woman, because the, the passion in her life is to pour out with intensity what that means at Jesus' feet, she receives forgiveness and a blessing of peace to go on her way. Forgiven. The Pharisee misses it 
because his passion is misplaced onto his own intellect and his own wisdom. And here this woman has one of the most tender, amazing encounters with Jesus in his entire ministry, at least as it's recorded for us. If your greatest passion is God, then worship is a great context. It feels like being at home, and you're in a great place here. But if you find that other things have a hold of your life, worship is still a great place. It's a place to come and wrestle. It's a place to magnify God because as we do that, you see, we are putting other things down into their place in our life where they should be as we raise God up. It's a, it's a struggle. It's a wrestle. It's okay if you're wrestling. That's what we're supposed to do, even in worship. You don't have to be perfect. You can come and, and, and feel somewhat hypocritical about the words you say as long as you're like, this isn't right. Well done. Wrestle. Struggle. Magnify God. Put that stuff down and keep working on it. That's what worship is partly about the struggle to put God in the place he belongs. And worship is intense. It is intense. It's also humble. Pride has been said to be a form of self-worship, which, of course, would be idolatry. So, of course, it's antithetical to real worship. Mary says that God was mindful of her humble state. Now, Mary's humble in a couple of ways. First of all, she's humble in her circumstances. We have already seen in the last few weeks she was poor. She was from Nazareth, which apparently culturally was looked down upon, but also uh, theologically or prophetically, Nazareth was unimportant, right? Just doesn't matter. It's not where God does anything important. And she was young. So her circumstances, she was humble. But she was humble inwardly as well, and this was very important. Remember how she responded to the angel, may it be to me as you've said, right? She submitted to his plan. Mary also, in her prayer and her praise, she says that God has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And so we kind of have this important, we need to understand, there is this uh, kind of twofold. It's a, it's a lot like the worship thing that's internal and external. So pride and humility have both an external and an internal kind of component. There were rulers and there were kings, and there still are, who are in a proud, if you will, position, a high position, and then there are the poor who are in a low position. But notice she also mentions those who are proud in their inmost thoughts, you see, and this is the key. This is the real trigger. Pride in the inmost thoughts is the important, most important component. And Mary sees a parallel between the Old Testament trends and her situation. And I think she's saying, hey, you know what? God has been consistent. He's always kind of been doing the same kinds of things over and over again, and we should expect him to continue to act that way, and so we should expect that from the Messiah, from God's Son. He resists the proud, but he gives grace and lifts up the humble. He always has been. 
So there's one of the first clues for Theophilus and for us. We're going to see that the theme of humility is developed for us. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the midst of uh, kind of an inaugural type of event for his ministry. He's in his hometown of Nazareth, and he announces, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Now, the gospel won't be exclusively for the poor, but he says, you know what? There's a sense in which it has a special focus and attention on the poor, especially when we understand the, the, the external and the internal kinds of prides and humility. He will focus on the humble. And so we're going to get stories. We're going to see that pride is often illustrated in financial wealth, and humility is often illustrated in poverty or physical neediness. And there will be stories about the problems of rich people. Why? Because God hates rich people? No. Because those who are rich or are in proud positions, authority and so forth, have a hard time admitting their neediness. Whereas those in humble circumstances kind of can't deny that they are needy. But remember, it's a tendency it's not an absolute, and the key is the internal. There will be prideful poor people, and there will be humble rich people. In fact, in Luke chapter 7, we find this great story. There was a man of wealth. He was definitely a in a position of authority and power, and he has a sick servant, and, a, and Jesus is sent for to, to bring healing, and when this man finds out that someone's sent for Jesus, he sends a message back that says, Lord, don't trouble yourself, or I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. And Jesus is stunned by what this man says to him. And, and you know, we'll look at it in, in a few months, but it, it's such a great story because this is, a, this is a Gentile. And Jesus goes on to say, I, I haven't seen, because of his humility and his trust, his belief that I could just heal someone if I wanted to, oh, I, haven't, I haven't seen faith like this. This guy is what I'm looking for. And everyone would assume what he's looking for is the perfect Israelite. And, and Jesus is announcing what I'm looking for for is faith, humble faith. That's what I'm after. That's what I respond to, and that's who the gospel's for. So in worship, in real worship, we come humbly. In worship, we're reminded how much greater God is than ourselves, and how he cares for others as much as he cares for ourselves. So there's just a little warning for you, a little shot across the bow in the coming months, in the next two years. You might just want to be open to the idea of working on humility because it's coming your way, and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. The last thing is that worship is yielding. Now, this is a lot like being humble. It's kind of an extension of it, really, as we see Mary saying that God was uh, mindful of her humble state, and she calls herself a servant. She says, that, that's what I am. She has this understanding that she's not in charge or control, and she's good with it. Can you imagine that? What a unique person who knows they're not in control, and they're just fine with that, right? That's a rare person. She's like, I'm just the servant. Now, Mary is yielded to God in a couple of specific ways I want to focus on as we finish today. Well, as we're supposed to already be finished today. First thing is, she's yielded to what God wants to do with her life, kind of within her life. Notice how she said, 
from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. He's done great things for me. Now, if we take this viewpoint, right, we'd say, yeah, you're right, Mary. He has done great things. I mean, look at the lights and the, the Christmas story. Obviously, it's so beautiful. And how many of us will ever end up with a figurine on the table on a stage, right? You know, but here she is, right? You're right. God has done great things for you. But that's our perspective, right? When she utters these words, what's she dealing with, right? Let me suggest to you, only a worshiper who yields to God would possibly say of her circumstances, God has done great things for me. Only a worshiper yielded to God. Without that, what's this prayer likely sound like? Probably like things I've prayed. You know, maybe you've prayed. Something like, well, God, I know, you know, you do important stuff, but... I have to say, you're really messing up my life here, right? I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed or troubled, and and you know, I'm really I'm subjected to to accusation and ridicule, and I'm not completely sure that my life isn't on the line, and 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 this whole thing, you know, why did it have to hurt my fiance so badly? The 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 sleepless horrendous hours as he found out I'm pregnant and could he possibly believe a crazy story like what I have to tell him. It crushed him and that crushes me and then we're living as fugitives from the law and and, and then, you know, we run to Egypt and we have to flee the country and I hear about all these children who've been killed and I understand it was an evil king who did it. I didn't, you know, wield the knife, but I feel responsible. It was about my own son and these children were killed because some king is jealous and it goes on and on and now he's, he's growing up and I witness the most harsh criticism of my son. It's so hard to listen to people criticize your own child, isn't it? And then... I have to watch his execution. But Mary says, not reluctantly, not, well, God, I know it's about bigger things and you've messed up my life, but I know it's important, so oh well. She says, no, God's done great things for me. <laughs> I love God. I have passion for God. I have joy over God because he's done great things for me. Only a yielded worshiper can possibly come out with this perspective. She understands things that the prophets had said about a perspective about what God does within your life. Isaiah said, Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, You did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, You know nothing? Where he's like... How could I question God over the circumstances of my life or question that God is good? That's not something that a servant does, a worshiper who's yielded to God does. I, quite frankly, I just have too much joy in God to question him over things. She has yielded to God for the circumstances of her own life and worships God because of it. Now, she's also yielded, it seems to me, to things beyond her life. She says all, not, not only does Elizabeth call her blessed, she says, you know what, all generations will call me blessed. I don't know if she could have possibly pictured this thing over here right now. That'd be a little bit wild. But she's, she understands that this is an amazing thing God is doing. 
Regardless of the, the costs and the difficult situations, this is something God is doing that goes beyond her life. She says, here's how God acts in history. She's already seen it, and it's continuing today and through her life that his mercy extends not just in her life, but from generation to generation. And we will see again in Luke 4 when Jesus is in Nazareth, he begins to hint that God's mercy will extend to outsiders. And that message doesn't always go over with the insiders. And by the time we get to the end of the book, we'll hear the great commission that actually the gospel and the message of the cross will go to all nations in the world. And it is open to anyone who wants to humble themselves and yield to God. Last week I was talking with a a friend who's had this uh, relative who has been sick for years, (laughs) lots of years, and for at least the last couple years, uh, the doctors have told her, yeah, you're not going to make it any longer. You know, like, your body's done. And yet she's still going. So last week I, I asked him, you know, hey, how's your relative? And And uh, he's like, well, you know, when she's awake, she'll say, I don't know why I'm here. Uh, You know, I'm ready for heaven, but here I am. I don't understand it, and the doctors don't understand it, and and here she is. And and he used the same phrase, and we've kind of kicked this around now for a couple years. I think some other people have too, you know, and he said, yeah, it's just like we always say. Boy, you know, the body just doesn't give up easily, you know? And right away, because I got Mary's words running through my head because I'm studying, you know, for a couple weeks, and it dawns on me. See, now, when we think of her situation, and maybe you've known someone like this, the body's hanging on way longer than their ability to appreciate life, and you feel so bad. And so within the confines of the circumstances of her life, it looks, well, and it is, it's suffering. And it's very difficult. I'm not putting that down at all. That is very, very true. But if we would do this and look beyond the confines of our own lives with our struggles, what might we see? And immediately I thought, yeah, like, like Mary does with her life, if we thought beyond your relative's life, you know, and we thought about the resiliency of her body and how it just won't give up as, as a gift from God to humanity, I'm going to create you not with life, but with life, right? And that thing's going to hang on, and you have an enemy death, and eventually, of course, it, it, it'll get you all, but i got a plan beyond that, too, and there's cross and all that kind of stuff. But in the meantime, you will all, as a group, as humanity, you will experience this as a gift and a blessing as repeatedly throughout life, however long that lasts, the ability to heal and to recover from disease and injury, and you'll have more time with families and parents, we'll have children, and on it goes, and we experience that through our lives so many times as a gift and a blessing. And yes, at one point, it might create this struggle, but it was a gift, God says. I gave you life. Life is sacred. And it doesn't let go easy. Now, do I know that that's the perspective that my friend's family should take and that that that's what God is up to? I don't actually know that. And maybe you're thinking about a circumstance in your life right now that's very difficult, and, and do I know that if you 
kind of looked up beyond the confines of your life, would you be able to recognize and put your finger on something that God is doing that's good? I, I don't know your circumstance that you're thinking of, and I don't know that for a fact, but here's what I do know. A couple thousand years ago, there was a young woman. Apparently, you would have called her a child. But there was a young woman who looked beyond the troubles of her immediate life from generation to generation and said, God is doing great things, and I worship him for it. Not just reluctantly, not just, well, all right, if that's what my life has to be, but I am a servant. I am humble, I am yielded, and you, God, are holy. Praise be to God. You are my passion. Let's pray. Well, Father, we continue to be amazed uh, week to week at your servant, Mary. And uh, though not a perfect person, a great model, and now this week a great model of what it is to worship and to serve you. And uh, we just pray that uh, her testimony, her worship would inspire and change us because it comes not just as her words, but as the word of God to us today. And Father, we pray you would uh, remake us. You would give us the ability to worship in these same ways, that you would begin to build into us these same thoughts and attitudes. Make us into worshipers who humble ourselves, who serve you and yield to you and to praise your great name. In Jesus' name, amen.